Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Planning Podcast series on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. For today, we are joined by two senior wealth strategists from the advanced planning team, Casey Verst, based out of Los Angeles, California, as well as Joanna Morrison, based out of Chicago, Illinois. Casey and Joanna will be providing highlights from their white paper, Planning for LGBTQ Individuals, including what makes planning for LGBTQ couples unique, starting a family as an LGBTQ couple, and considerations for estate planning. For some context, the Advanced Planning Group consists of former practicing estate planning and tax attorneys with extensive private practice experience and diverse areas of specialization. This includes estate planning strategies, income and transfer tax planning, family office structuring, business succession planning, charitable planning, and family governance. They provide comprehensive planning and sophisticated insights and education to ultra-high net worth clients. So Joanna, Casey, thank you both for spending some time with our listeners, our clients here on UBS Conversations. Looking forward to our conversation today. And with that, Joanna, perhaps we can begin with you. Now, after same-sex marriage became the law of the land eight years ago this month, does planning for LGBTQ couples remain a unique challenge from your vantage point? Happy Pride Month, everyone. Um, yeah, so, so prior to the Supreme Court ruling in Obergefell v. Hodges, that was that 2015 ruling, um, which made same-sex marriage the law of the land, the landscape for LGBTQ planning was very complicated because some states allowed it, while some states didn't. And, and the Obergefell ruling simplified this landscape by providing some legal uniformity. However, it didn't completely simplify it, and, and I believe that's partially because while the number of couples who've decided to marry since this ruling has nearly doubled, not everyone is rushing to get married. It's estimated there are over a million cohabitating LGBTQ couples in the United States. And of those, approximately one million or so, only about half are married and the other half are unmarried. And when you compare that statistics to uh, cohabitating heterosexual couples, you see that 90% of uh, cohabitating heterosexual couples are married and then 10% are unmarried. So that's a huge, meaningful statistical difference. And, and it is meaningful when it comes to planning for the LGBTQ community. And I think when you realize that Obergefell, that ruling isn't even a decade old, these statistics maybe aren't all that surprising. Um, and so you have um, LGBTQ couples asking this really important question now. Uh, now that we can get married, it's, should they get married? And our LGBTQ clients are asking questions like, what are the financial benefits? And, and what are the drawbacks of marriage and how do you balance those things? So, Casey, to welcome you into the conversation, building on what Joanna just shared with us, what would you identify as being some key considerations for unmarried LGBTQ couples deciding whether to get married? Yeah, thanks, Dan, and, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I think, you know, it, it's it's uh, similar analysis, you know, that... Um, that anybody would go through when they're deciding whether or not to get married, right? There's a lot that goes into it. There's personal, um, you know, lifestyle, cultural uh, preferences, right, on on whether somebody wants to get uh, married or not. But um, I think, as Joanna, you know, indicated in the statistics, right? I think for LGBTQ couples, especially because 
Historically, they haven't had the ability to get married uh, as they're now uh, legally have the right to get married um, in the United States. I think they're you know sort of asking these questions of, you know, are there any differences for us? You know, we've maybe been living together for 10, 20 years. Uh, you know, are there any benefits or drawbacks? You know, what should we think about as, as we um, potentially embark on on the journey of, of getting married? Um, so a couple of things from a, you know, estate planning and tax lawyer perspective that we thought would be helpful for people to be aware of. Um, one is, you know, I'll, I'll sort of start with the benefits and then touch on a few drawbacks as well. So um, one is Social Security survivor benefits. So, you know, again, these are going to be things that for a cohabitating couple um, and actually even for couples that maybe had a civil union or domestic partnership before the 2015 ruling, right, those are not recognized for federal purposes. So this would just have to be for couples that actually do take that next step and get legally married. These would be those default benefits under federal law that now they would potentially be eligible for. Uh, so as I mentioned, Social Security survivor benefits that otherwise wouldn't necessarily be available to somebody who was in an um, unmarried partnership um, or domestic partnership or civil union. Um, another benefit would be um, retirement account beneficiary options. So there are, without sort of going into the details, there are um, benefits to a, inheriting an IRA from a spouse. You can essentially roll it over into um, your name and, and become the owner uh, on that um, IRA uh, if you are legally married, if you are legally a surviving spouse of that individual. So that would be a huge benefit as well. Um, another one would be um, the exclusion from gain on a sale from a, of a primary residence. So there's an exclusion from gain if somebody um, sells their primary residence of uh, up to $250,000 of gain um, is not subject to capital gains tax on this specific exclusion um, that the IRS Grants individuals and for married couples, it's up, it's doubled. It's up to 500,000. So if an if a unmarried couple was living together um, and anticipated at some point selling their primary residence, this would be, you know, potentially a large benefit if they were legally married, um, that they would be able to double the exclusion from gain on the sale of a primary residence. Uh, and the other one that I want to highlight, and this is really up Joanna and I's alley because this is what we do a lot for clients is talk about gift and estate tax planning is that between spouses from an estate and gift tax perspective, there's what's called an unlimited marital deduction where transfers of assets between spouses um, are not considered taxable gifts. Um, otherwise, there is a certain limitation. Uh, in 2023, it's $12.92 million, uh, but there's an estate and gift tax exemption that would apply to transfers uh, between uh, any any other individual, essentially, um, any child or you know friend or unmarried partner, right? But transfers between spouses, there is an unlimited marital reduction, and those gifts don't have to be reported to the IRS. Um, so that would be a huge uh, benefit as well. That um, if somebody added a spouse as a joint owner on an account or on a primary residence, for example, um, those would no longer be reportable gifts um, because they would be legally married spouses. Um, so now I'll, I'll touch on just briefly a couple of the potential drawbacks of marriage from a, a state and tax planning perspective. Um, one is what's often referred to as the income tax marriage penalty. And again, I won't really go into the details on it, but essentially if there is a married couple uh, which are uh, both two high earners, uh, meaning they have high salaries, they have high uh, taxable income on, an, on a regular basis, um, they likely would pay more in income tax uh, as a married couple than they would have if they would have stayed unmarried. 
Um, so that's a potential consideration, I think, for a couple. Um, another is um, debts, potentially. So state laws do differ throughout the country as to how they treat debts between spouses. Um, but often, if you're marrying somebody, you are potentially taking on liability for your spouse's debts. Um, so that would be a consideration, uh, potential drawback, um, potentially to getting married um, that couples would want to keep in mind. Um, so those are just some of the, the highlights, Dan, I think that are worth noting for individuals as, as far as considerations from a tax and planning perspective before getting married. Well, thank you, Casey. So now that we have a better sense for the benefits and the drawbacks of marriage, to expand on this a bit, can you speak a bit, Casey, to how the decision to marry factors into estate planning documents for these couples? Yeah, thanks, Dan. No, it's a great, great question. And this is really, I think, what was the impetus for Joanna and I wanting to put this white paper together, um, you know, to go back to the statistics that Joanna referenced, um, you know, even though after the 2015 Supreme Court ruling that same-sex couples can get married, a lot of them have decided not to get married. Um, and it's just not as common that you see same-sex couples getting married. And one of the things that these couples should be aware of is that there are a lot of default laws on the books in most states that provide for default inheritance to surviving spouses, for example, that wouldn't necessarily apply to somebody who is living in an unmarried uh, partnership. Um, and similarly, there are default laws that provide for who would make medical decisions or be in charge of your financial affairs if you're incapacitated that, again, likely wouldn't apply in the context of somebody who's in an unmarried partnership. Um, so it makes having your estate planning documents in place even more important for those couples because you want to make sure that you've named those individuals, not only in, for example, a healthcare directive or a power of attorney, that you've named your partner or uh, another family member that you want to be able to make medical decisions for you, um, that you've specifically named those in those documents um, because otherwise the law might say that um, you know, it's your sibling or your parent who would have those rights under state law, um, even if you've, you know, had a partner that you've lived with for 20 years. Um, if you don't have a document in place that actually says this is who I want to make medical decisions for for me, um, the law wouldn't wouldn't really um, allow that, right? So, so um, either getting legally married for those reasons, or or more importantly to me, making sure you have those estate planning documents in place um, to provide for that. And as I touched on a minute ago, similarly for inheritance um, or, or naming beneficiary designations on retirement accounts or life insurance policies, uh, making sure that you've looked at your assets and that you've talked to an estate planning attorney and making sure you have those documents in place because, um, again, either uh, the default laws in states would provide that those assets would go to your, you know, siblings or nieces and nephews or other individuals that maybe you wouldn't necessarily want to inherit. Um, and similarly, if you, you know, if, if you're living with your partner and you're on title on the house, for example, um, and something happens to you, then your, and your estate plan doesn't provide that the house would go to your partner. Um, you know, that's obviously a very important thing to be planning for, right? That you would want to make sure that you don't have other family members that are coming in and um, selling that residence um, because they now uh, have inherited it through um, default, uh, what are called intestate succession laws that are on the books um, in different states across the country. So, uh, so it just makes estate planning, you know, I think as an estate planning attorney, I have to say, right, anybody who's listening to this podcast right now, very important for you to have your estate plan 
in place and updated. I think we generally say about every five years, you should revisit your estate plan and make sure that the people you've named to be in charge of your estate or take care of you if you're incapacitated um, are updated, but especially here for same-sex couples because so many cohabitating couples remain unmarried. Um, it sort of adds that extra layer uh, of urgency for those couples to make sure that they have documents in place that state their preferences. Okay, so quite a few estate planning considerations there to be mindful of. It sounds like having a plan in place is key. So thank you, Casey, for touching on that. Uh, Joanna, to welcome you back into the conversation, it was mentioned at the start, considerations within the white paper for LGBTQ couples when starting a family. Can you take a few moments to provide some highlights there? So LGBTQ individuals and same-sex couples, they might decide to start a family in a number of different ways. And what I'm saying is that the parent-child relationship is really a state law concept. And unfortunately, many in many states, the, state, the statutes dated, and they just, quite frankly, have not kept up with the changing times. Um, two very common ways for people to decide to start a family would be through adoption or through assistive reproductive technology uh, that's commonly referred to as ART. Um, and in adoption, you'll see that married couples uniformly can adopt jointly. However, in many states, that's not the case with an unmarried couple. And so a lot of the things that you would think that you want in a parent-child relationship just won't be able to happen for unmarried LGBTQ couples in many states. And this is another important consideration, you know, beyond tax efficiency, um, beyond, you know, inheritance, and in, in whether or not, you know, you're, if you're considering getting married. Um, you know, obviously, there's an emotional aspect of the parent-child relationship, but from a, there's also the legal perspective. Um, if you have not legally adopted the child, then you likely don't have the right to make medical or educational decisions for your child. And you see this in situations when only one partner in the relationship is permitted to adopt under the law. Uh, some states uh, may be moving forward a little bit, and they have what's called second parent adoption. So that would allow um, the other partner in a um, unmarried LGBTQ couple to adopt the child as well. Uh, but all states don't have that second parent adoption law. So it's really important when you're considering uh, if you're going to adopt, where are you going to adopt the child and to see what the state law is there. Um, adoption law also interacts with assisted reproductive technology. Uh, with married couples, you know, the state laws are usually something like the birth mother of the child will be considered the legal parent. And then it says, you know, the husband of the mother will be considered the other legal parent. And again, these laws are dated. And in 2017, the Supreme Court said LGBTQ individuals need to also be listed on the birth certificate. So if you have a mother and a mother or a father and a father, um, then they need to be listed on the birth certificate as well. Um, but that doesn't necessarily work, and it excludes people when you have an unmarried couple. If only one parent, the birth mother in this situation, is listed on the birth certificate, then you're leaving out the other partner. And there's several cases out there where down the line this really causes problems with custody battles, and there are just a lot of other legal ramifications. And again, this leads back to talking about, you know, making those really important decisions for your child, educational decisions, medical decisions, and, and custodial decisions that you might not be able to be a part of if you're an unmarried partner that is unable to legally adopt a child. 
So, Joanna, as a follow-up to that, do you have any estate planning drafting tips for individuals in this situation? No, Dan, I would say that, you know, most people, when they hear estate planning, they think about tax efficiency and how do I minimize my transfer taxes. But, you know, a huge part of estate planning is your legacy. And this is important for everyone, regardless of net worth, ensuring that your assets end up where you want them to be when you're no longer here. And, you know, I'm just going to echo Casey here that this is especially important with unmarried couples um, because of these default laws, inheritance laws in those states and these default laws about, you know, who can make medical decisions for you, who gets to make decisions regarding your properties that are incapacitated. So, you know, I'm, I'm really just echoing Casey here, but the state planner in me can't, can't help with doing it. Um, it's just so important to take the time and think through these decisions. Who do you want to make these decisions for you if you're no longer here? And where do you want your assets to end up if you're no longer here? Well, Joanna, Casey, thank you both again for the insights and for spending some time with our listeners, our clients here on the UBS Conversations podcast channel to provide some takeaways from your white paper, Planning for LGBTQ Individuals. I will point out to our clients of UBS listening in, if you do want to receive a copy directly, please reach out to your UBS financial advisor. Though, again, today we have been joined by Casey Verst, as well as Joanna Morrison, Senior Wealth Strategist with the Advanced Planning Team here at UBS. Casey, Joanna, thank you again. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having us. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.